case of emergency, break glass. So said Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin last year about what should be done about the erratic behavior of President Donald Trump. At the time, Raskin cited what he described as Trump's bizarre outbursts and seemingly deranged tweets, his words, behavior that he said displays a sustained pattern that indicates something is seriously wrong. And he proposed a radical solution. Congress should break glass by passing a law that would create a new body of distinguished citizens who could trigger the 25th Amendment and declare the president mentally unfit for office. That was in June 2017, barely six months into Trump's presidency. Since then, Trump's behavior has become, to many, even more bizarre and inexplicable. A new book by legendary reporter Bob Woodward reveals that the chief of staff, John Kelly, privately called the president, quote, an idiot, who has, quote, gone off the rails and said about working at the White House, we're in crazy town. James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is quoted, according to Woodward's sources, as telling close associates that the president acts and has the understanding of, quote, a fifth or sixth grader. Former economic advisor Gary Cohn calls Trump a professional liar. Then, an anonymous senior official inside the administration writes an op-ed in the New York Times saying he and others are part of a secret resistance who are thwarting the chief executive and that members of the cabinet have indeed whispered about invoking the 25th Amendment. Mr. or Ms. Anonymous describes a president prone to repetitive rants and impulsiveness that results in, quote, half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions. Are we really in crazy town? And if so, what does the country do about it? We'll discuss with Congressman Raskin, the lawmaker who is pushing the 25th Amendment solution, one that could well get lots more traction if the Democrats retake control of the House this November. And then we'll talk with two Washington veterans of multiple Supreme Court confirmation hearings, Republican Boyden Gray and Democrat Ron Klain, about the grilling this week of Trump's nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. All that and more on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Russia is a ruse. I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, uh, Danny, it's become sort of a ritual in Washington. Every new president in the first year or two of his administration gets a Bob Woodward book. And uh, there's always a lot of anticipation. The book comes out. There's uh, embarrassing anecdotes, uh, uh, obviously supplied by senior White House and other administration officials. And it always causes uh, a bit of a ruckus. But I think it's fair to say we haven't seen anything quite like this one. 
Yeah, pre- presidents get the Woodward treatment. And, and by the way, part of the ritual is that uh, fairly accomplished reporters like ourselves um, have to then chase everything that Bob Woodward got. We've been doing that for yes. how long now? <laughs> uh, many, many years. Never a pleasant task uh, because, uh, you know, we do a lot of reporting. We think we're getting good stuff. And then Woodward inevitably yeah. trumps us all. But look, uh, you know, this this. Uh, book uh, would you know has so many bombshells in it it would have had a huge impact you know no matter w- when it landed um, in in this administration but the timing um, of the of the news about the Woodward book is actually um, you know uh, pretty significant because it comes you know just days before this extraordinary uh, anonymous op-ed piece which uh, which the New York Times ran that talks about a, a resistance from within and uh, that, um, you know, uh, talks seriously about the 25th Amendment um, yeah. and about you know, removing... Members of the cabinet whispering about the 25th Amendment. Which and just, is, yeah, what? Just, just think about it. I mean, we were right. about to have um, a serious, not all together theoretical conversation about the 25th Amendment. This isn't constitutional law class, right? right. Uh, although uh, Jamie Raskin, Congressman Raskin, taught constitutional law for 25 years. Um, this is a, a real conversation in Washington. Um, and let's just uh, just dissect a little bit of some of those uh, amazing anecdotes in the in the Woodward book. Um, one that, you know, I think uh, grabbed a lot of people was uh, the meeting Trump has a, 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 of senior national security officials after uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has launched a chemical uh, weapons attack on civilians in April 2017. Trump calls Mattis and says he wants to assassinate Assad. Quote, let's fucking kill him. Let's go in there. Let's kill the fucking lot of them. Uh, Trump says, according to uh, Woodward's uh, book, uh, Mattis tells the president he would get right on it. But of course, he has no intention of doing so. After hanging up the phone, he tells a senior aide, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to be much more measured. And indeed, there was a uh, uh, an airstrike uh, against Syrian positions right after that. But nothing like an assassination for a good reason. There is an executive order that's been reaffirmed many times, started with uh, Gerald Ford Ford. uh, after the revelations of the church committee about uh, uh, assassinations that the CIA sought to carry out uh, in the 1950s and early 1960s, and it's banned. Uh, uh, Assassinating foreign leaders are banned, uh, is banned, Mattis no doubt knew that uh, and knew what the president was asking him to do um, was prohibited by law. Um, the other one, obviously. Well, let's just on yeah, that one sure. just for a second, um, because, you know, rightly, everyone has uh, focused on 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 Trump, um, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that, uh, if not ordering uh, uh, Mattis to, to uh, launch an execution of uh, Assad. Uh, Assad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing that I think um, has not gotten as much attention, I think is kind of striking, um, is Mattis's response, which is to humor him um, yeah. and then say to his colleague, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to be much more measured. But what does it say about a president 
um, who you can't talk directly to and say, well, Mr. President, that would be a violation of law, uh, domestic and international, and, and that's not the, the most prudent course of action. Do they live in fear of him? Do they, have they figured out that, uh, uh, that, that just not telling him the truth um, is the best way to, to handle him? I mean, there's something really almost sick about, uh, I mean, I sort of understand, I guess, why uh, Mattis would do that, but there's something really wrong, <laughs> fundamentally wrong, uh, about a defense secretary who can't speak directly and honestly uh, with the commander-in-chief. That is not healthy. Well, uh, talk about not healthy. Uh, uh, look at the uh, uh, quotes attributed to the president about Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, uh, Trump calls him, according to Woodward, uh, uh, Woodward's book, quote, this guy is mentally retarded. He's this dumb Southerner. He couldn't even be a one-person country lawyer down in Alabama. Um, calling your attorney general uh, mentally retarded is probably unprecedented, I would think. Right. Uh, and, and then, and then uh, calling him a dumb Southerner yeah. uh, is not great politically, yeah. uh, given the fact that so much of his base and the most you know, passionate parts of his base reside in in the South. Um, so, I, w- I will say that uh, he tried to seems he tried to clean it up with a tweet um, later yeah. um, after the after those excerpts came out, in, in which he said, among other things, "Being a Southerner is a great all caps thing." Uh, yeah. um, but look, I, I wanted to um, kind of go back to sort of make the larger point about. Um, the, the reality that uh, there are apparently some and per- per- perhaps many uh, people inside the Trump administration um, who are sort of regard themselves as sort of human guardrails uh, to protect us from uh, the president that they serve, to thwart him uh, and, and, and in some instances his, his agenda, certainly his behavior. Um, look, this is the duly elected uh, president um, of the United States. Um, and even if it's comforting uh, to some people uh, that there are professionals inside the administration who are taking on this responsibility, the fact that we are here, uh, that there is a kind of uh, silent coup uh, perhaps going on inside the administration is really worrisome. I think Woodward uh, refers to it as an administrative coup d'état. Right, right. Um, by the way, I should point out that uh, that both Mattis and uh, and Kelly have issued statements uh, denying that they said the things that uh, Woodward quotes them. Of course, Woodward has a long track record of getting it right. Uh, but um, the idea of a coup is uh, is 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 going to be troubling to a lot of people on a lot of levels, and which is why some are saying. Uh, this ad- anonymous senior official uh, really has a duty to come forward and uh, and tell what they know to the Congress of the United States, uh, because there are um, constitutional processes that can remove a president. Uh, obviously, impeachment is one of them. But uh, as I telegraphed at the start of the show, uh, there's another method. It's the 25th Amendment. And we're going to discuss that now uh, with our next guest, Jamie Raskin. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Delighted to be with you. So, look, last year uh, um, we uh, we spoke after you introduced your 25th Amendment bill. Uh, and um, at the time, I think you had something like uh, 25 or so sponsors. Uh, I see you're now up to like 65. I'm just wondering, have you gotten any more this week? Yes. In fact, someone just told me they wanted to be added. Um, who from Florida? Uh, 
Yeah, I'll see Hastings. Just tell me one. Be okay. Make sure he's on there. Yeah. I'm telling my staff, even as we speak to Adam. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think yesterday's events have created a, another surge on the bill. Unfortunately, it's all still Democrats. Um, right. So, look, uh, uh, you know, when when you introduced this last year, you cited the president's uh, erratic behavior, his tweet storms, uh, all indicating there was uh, so- something could be seriously wrong. But that was in June of 2017. Here we are more than a year later. Uh, and there's been a lot more of uh, indications of this erratic behavior, a lot more of these uh, tweet storms that have puzzled so many. Um, what is your assessment of the president's mental condition right now? And do you think there is the basis as we speak to invoke the 25th Amendment? Well, look, I mean, I've got no special expertise to pronounce on the state of the president's mind or any of the chaos that has overtaken the White House. Um, but my point is that it's not our judgment to make, but we do have a clear constitutional duty under the 25th Amendment to set up the process by which a judgment of presidential incapacity could actually be made. And um, the, the, a lot of the TV networks have not gotten the point yet because they, they keep publishing stuff which says it requires the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to act. But the Constitution in Section 4 of the 25th Amendment actually says it's the vice president and a majority of the cabinet or a majority of a body set up by Congress. And when I first got elected to Congress, I called over to the Library of Congress. I said, I can't find the body that was set up that would oversee presidential capacity and incapacity. And they said it had never been set up in 50 years since the passage of the 25th Amendment in 1967. So my legislation doesn't even mention Donald Trump. It's not about him. It's just about setting up the body that is in place for Congress to act in the event that there is an emergency regarding the capacity of the president. Wait, uh, 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 Congressman, um, let me just ask you a, a couple of questions. One, just on what you just said, uh, I mean, isn't uh, the the state of this presidency and 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 who this president is isn't that a significant impetus for you? Would you be doing this uh, had Jeb Bush become president? Well, well, probably yes, but no. I mean, it absolutely is an impetus. I'm I'm not trying to be coy or cute about that. I just mean this is something that should have been done the very first year after the 25th Amendment was adopted. In other words, right. you know, if you go back and you look at the legislative history of the 25th Amendment and what uh, Birch Bayh and Robert F. Kennedy were saying, uh, although it was a totally bipartisan amendment and had vast support across the aisle. Um, they were saying what they were saying is, you know, we've got 535 members of Congress. We just have one president and we've had enough experience with physical illness and incapacity and assassination and all of these problems that can uh, occur in the presidency that we need to have a body set up. Um, and if you look at it in the context of the whole 25th Amendment, you'll see that it's really about stability uh, in the office and making sure that there are not succession crises. Because the first part of it is about what happens if the president goes. The second part is what happens if the vice president goes. The third allows the president to temporarily hand off powers in the event of some problem. And then the fourth part is, what if there's a problem with the president, but the president's still alive, but the president cannot act for mental or physical reasons to say that he or she is unable to discharge the powers and duties of office? And we just need to deal with that. Um, let me, let me, I, let me, I, one more follow-up, Mike, on this. Mm-hmm. I, I just... 
As I read Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, it looks to me, at least there's a plausible argument, that what that language says is that while you may not need a majority of the cabinet, you need this uh, uh, congressional body as well as the vice president. You don't read it that way? You can just be no, the bo- No, okay. I do. Okay. No, well, no. no yeah. A is a majority of the cabinet and the vice president, right. and B is a majority of the body set up by Congress well, and the vice president. Well, let me just, and the vice president. So either way, you need the vice president, in this case Mike Pence, to sign off on an invocation of the 25th Amendment declaring the president unfit. Correct. And if you look at my legislation, it's completely bicameral and completely bipartisan. So half of the members would be appointed by the majority leaders of the House and the Senate. Half the members would be appointed by the minority leaders in the House and the Senate. And the 11th member of the chair would be chosen by the group itself. And it would be made up of former cabinet officials, former presidents, vice presidents, physicians, and psychiatrists. So um, nobody has leveled any substantive critique of the legislation. Everybody's saying, well, if we're going to do it, this is clearly you know, the kind of thing that we need to be doing. But the question is, is it an insult or somehow an affront to the president to set up the process? And you know, I do wish it had been set up 50 years ago, but it wasn't. It should have been, or somewhere along the way. But now, you know, we need a process so that in the event of an emergency, we can break the glass and uh, activate it. You know, a lot of people want to read the 25th Amendment out of the Constitution, but it's there for a reason. It was passed in the nuclear age. It clearly, you know, has the, the shadow of the nuclear age hanging over it. And, um, you know, people have rightfully raised questions about presidential capacity at a time when the president has such awesome military powers at his disposal. So, look, I realize you're not a physician and you're not a psychiatrist, but um, you're obviously doing this for a reason. Uh, And uh, if you were going to make the case uh, that the president's behavior is so uh, extraordinary and so troubling that it requires serious uh, consideration of the 25th Amendment route, um, how would you make the case? Well, you're a clever guy, but I don't think I want to be lured into that because I really am not making the case that the president needs to be removed because of incapacity. Well, you're putting it on the table. Well, let's take Trump off the table here for a second. What is the threshold for for incapacitation? How do you define that? Well, well, right. And, you know, obviously the, the framers of the 25th Amendment left it open and one hopes that, you know, the Congress would, in its wisdom, flesh it out with a process that makes sense. That's why the the Commission on Presidential Capacity that we're advocating has both people who've served either as president or as vice president or in close proximity to the president, so people understand the arduous nature of the job and the extraordinary pressures and tensions and the difficult judgments that are built into it, but also people who are physicians and psychiatrists. So it cannot be said that it's some sort of inside political job. But even there, because of the provisions of the 25th Amendment, if the president were removed by this commission for several days, and then the president, you can see if you read Section 4, says, no, everything's fine now, I can come back to work, it would take a vote of two-thirds of the House and the Senate in order to say that, oh, the president continues to show the signs of incapacity and needs to be put on the sidelines until improvement is made. So, 
you know, it's basically the same vote that would be required of impeachment, but it's not just in the Senate, it's in the House, too. So, but look, I mean, you have put this on the table, and yeah. I want to discuss your assessment of the president's behavior. You, you know, obviously you're doing this because you find it troubling in many respects, and I suspect that uh, the events of the last week have only uh, uh, ramped up those concerns. So give us your assessment of well, okay, the put it this way. I, I mean, one piece of evidence that I would find extremely compelling if I were a member of this commission um, is that people around the president are saying that his behavior is completely unstable and uh, erratic and unpredictable, and he veers from this position to that position, and you never know what he's going to do next. Um, and there are people who now are apparently boasting that they are subverting the president's orders because they're so deranged. I mean, that strikes me as kind of prima facie evidence that there's a very serious problem of capacities to successfully discharge the powers and duties of office. So I would say, yeah, the evidence that has unfolded over the last 48 hours is something that a commission in its wisdom would undoubtedly deliberate on and take under advisement. You know, I think a lot of the behavior that uh, also is really outside of the norm is uh, picking fights with uh, individual citizens, picking fights with leaders of foreign countries, name-calling, insulting, uh, impetuous abuse of people, constant um, provocations uh, leveled at other people. I mean, that just strikes me as completely bizarre and deranged behavior. Now, you would have to show that it interferes with the ability to actually execute the powers and duties of office. It's a very high standard, just like high crimes and misdemeanors is a high standard. I mean, we're a democracy. We take seriously our presidential elections. But the 25th Amendment is part of the Constitution. And I think we've got a serious constitutional responsibility we need to execute. But you could see how this would be a could could set a dangerous precedent um, if a president was uh, removed uh, this way and the standard was not exceedingly high because then, uh, you know, it becomes, you know, just a, a new form of, of, of politics, you know. Right. Well, we don't want it like the government is somehow decreeing people insane or mad and then exiling them from politics. We've seen enough of that with totalitarian regimes. In fact, that's much more characteristic of Trump style, where he has declared a lot of people mad and insane and off their rocker and so on. Um, You know, this is serious business. We only have one president, as the framers of the 25th Amendment put it. Uh, We have 535 members of Congress. We can afford some oddballs here and there. But if you've got a president who's not able to meet the basic duties of office because of some fundamental derangement, that's a real problem. And by the way, the if you look, there's an interesting colloquy between Senator Kennedy uh, and Senator Bai in the legislative history where they talk about the kinds of things that would lead to this. There could be presidents who are in a coma, presidents who have suffered a debilitating stroke that you know leave them unable to act. All of those things uh, could also or would also come within the purview of our commission. There's lots of other reasons. I mean, presidents could go missing. Presidents could be kidnapped. I mean, there's lots of reasons that a president could be incapacitated. So this is not just about maybe the most difficult question, which is at what point you know a person's mental 
detachment and derangement becomes debilitating. But besides um, the you know the behavior that is you know bizarre and erratic and you know impulsive, um, ha- have you actually seen um, any evidence of this president not being able to uh, discharge his presidential duties? Well, you know, I mean, <clears throat> this is why it's such a difficult question because I thought from the beginning that he does not understand his oath of office. He, you know, Bill Clinton was impeached for telling one lie. This president has told literally thousands of public and private lies. And apparently his own lawyers told the Department of Justice that they would not uh, permit him to testify because he, he was constitutionally incapable of telling the truth. You know, so look, I think we're all together that the 25th Amendment establishes a very high burden, and it should. And I think that our statutory corollary to it should continue that high burden, both procedurally and substantively. But it is part of the Constitution. And just like with impeachment and high crimes and misdemeanors, we do have to make judgments in hard cases, especially in the nuclear age. And so all I'm saying is we've got to set up the process and set up the commission. All right, look, let me ask you a political question. You're a a progressive Democrat, and uh, many of your constituents and like-minded members, uh, colleagues in the House, uh, want this president, uh, to want to figure out a way to remove this president from office. Most of the talk has been about impeachment, a very high bar, uh, very difficult. uh, If you get back control of the House in November, um, you could probably impeach the president, but then you face the obstacle in the Senate. Um, is this essentially an alternative way to remove the president? And if you get back control, if the Democrats take back control, um, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of wrangling about whether impeachment should go forward. You want to wait for Bob Mueller. But will you be aggressively pushing your amendment, your bill as an alternative? Okay. Well, first of all, it, it's hardly an alternative to impeachment because the standard has the same uh, effect. The ultimate, the, the standard in, for the ultimate judgment is more difficult than impeachment. You need a two-thirds vote in the Senate and the House um, for you know impeachment and removal. It's just a majority in the House and two-thirds in the Senate, so it's more difficult. So if that's all you're trying to do, then uh, you know this is a fool's errand. It doesn't make any sense. No, I look. I think. You know, when we first put this in, um, a lot of people were saying, you know, how dare you talk about mental health in public, um, which we weren't actually doing. We were talking about incapacity, which is a different question. Uh, Now the whole country is saying, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And so what I'm saying is that is imperfect um, as the 25th Amendment is. It's part of the Constitution. And we've got a responsibility to flesh out its meaning in the event that there's a real emergency. And I think everybody, even the people who might think that Donald Trump is the picture of mental health today um, and the picture of cognitive health, I think those people themselves should have no reason to be afraid of setting up a process that will be there in perpetuity, not just for this president, but for all presidents in the event that something goes really wrong. And that's precisely what the 25th Amendment calls for. Politically, I should say, on the impeachment question, let me just say politically, I think – Impeachment is way too good for what 
Donald Trump and the Republicans have done to America over the last several years. What do you want? Drawn and quarter? You know, public hanging? I want to impeach the whole party at the polls in 62 okay. days, uh, which is why I'm out campaigning constantly. We need to take back the House of Representatives. Uh, right now, they've got a royal straight flush. The Republicans control the House, the Senate, the White House, the Supreme Court, which they continue to pack after blockading um, you know, Democratic appointees like Merrick Garland. Um, and now, um, you know, we need a complete political renovation in the country. Let me just ask you one last question because we've got to let you go uh, uh, on your, your, your bill. You've got 65 or so uh, Democrats, uh, no Republicans um, who've joined on. But have you had uh, conversations with the Republicans who have expressed support, uh, but not necessarily the courage to uh, put their names, attach their names to your legislation? Well, I don't want to speak to their courage, but I've certainly had a number of Republicans today talk to me about um, how, you know, what a terrible situation it is. And, you know, you should do interviews with the ones who are leaving Congress to see, you know, which ones of them would actually speak to you openly. Of course, they can't vote concerned. for your bill if, they, if they're leaving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish that, you know, we didn't have such a herd instinct along party lines about stuff like this. and But, you know, you, you can find enough Republicans who have called um, Trump, you know, uh, really bad names like idiot and moron and incompetent. And it's an adult daycare wow. center. Many, over there right. Goes, Most of whom work yeah. for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so, but, you know, and all of that is at the level of, you know, a political schoolyard fight. But I would prefer to say, look, if there's a serious problem, Let's look within the constitutional toolkit to see if there's some tools to deal with it, and I think that there are. Um, all right. Well, uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll be back to you uh, after the November elections when the prospects for your legislation may improve considerably. Thank you so much. Great, great talking to you. All right. Thanks. The other big story going on this week, of course, is the confirmation hearings of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to be a uh, justice of the Supreme Court. And uh, we are joined by somebody uh, about as well qualified as anybody to uh, talk about Supreme Court confirmation battles. Uh, Boyden Gray, former uh, White House counsel to President George H.W. Bush and uh, also former ambassador to the European Union under George W. Bush. Uh, Boyden, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So, look, before we get to Kavanaugh, um, I do want to ask you about some of the other big news of the week. Uh, you've been in Washington a very long time, I think all your life, actually. Uh, and uh, certainly for the last uh, 30 years or so or more, we've had the ritual of the regular Bob Woodward book that comes out in the first year or two of a new president and always has lots of juicy anecdotes. But... Um, have you ever seen one quite like this? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I, I think his some of his other books had some pretty explosive stuff in them. Um, the reason why I say I'm not sure this is all that unique is because Trump behaves in a way that no other previous presidents behaved. So maybe the revelations aren't surprisingly um, that much more unique because there are more of them. Let's just step back for a second, um, since you've seen a lot of presidents in this town and um, a lot of uh, controversies and scandals and and uh, and big stories. Let me just ask you: ha 
have you ever seen anything as crazy as uh, what we're going through right now in this city? Well, it is a bit head spinning. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we we'll, we want to get to uh, the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearing, but it strikes me interesting kind of parallel universes here that all this kind of chaos um, and the, you know everything that's head spinning, as you put it, in, inside uh, the White House um, and the kind of circus um, atmosphere on the one side, and then the hearing itself is. You know, it's colorful, and the Democrats are making a big show pretty of it. Pretty chaotic. But it's, yeah, but it's playing out in pretty conventional ways. You know, a, 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 uh, you know, a, a very well-respected, highly qualified uh, lawyer, uh, Republican lawyer, um, who is uh, nominated for the Supreme Court. Um, he's handling himself well. He's light, almost certainly going to be, uh, gonna be um, uh, confirmed. Um, and so I think our next guest, uh, Ron Klain, he's is going to dispute that, that well, he's good, handling good. himself well. But uh, All right. let's get Boyd's Well, let's view. get your uh, view on uh, <laughs> yeah. on how this has uh, played out so far and what your expectations are uh, uh, after the hearings are, are completed. Well, you know, <clears throat> it, maybe the confirmation process has continued to coarsen over the years since uh, Bork. And, of course, I lived through the Clarence Thomas um, mess um which was which was pretty bad and he didn't deserve it and biden didn't deserve it uh he was he was basically undercut and lied to by messenbaum kennedy and simon and so he had to bear the brunt of it biden did a lot of it as chairman of the committee and i don't think he was very pleased by the behavior of of his colleagues um this hearing really set a new low i mean you have this this, this revolving door of, of, of people screaming and shouting and being carted out. They leave a seat open, and in comes another protester. And who paid all them? I mean, this is not a spontaneous thing, I don't think. Maybe it is. Um, but it was pretty shameful. And then when they have to escort the two daughters out, he quips in the beginning, Kavanaugh does, when he introduces his family, well, you know, my daughters are, uh, you know, thrilled to have a day off from school. And then there was an email that came over, several hours later saying, you know, they now wish they were in school, you know. So when they have to escort them out because it's so brutal and so, and they're in tears, I mean, that's that's really bad. And, you know, when Booker makes this big thing about, you know, and they won't release the documents and I'm doing it knowing that I'm violating the rules, he knows, I think he knows, that the documents have already been released to the public when he goes through this song and dance. I mean, that's abusing the committee process for his own, you know, maybe popularity, um, but it's just—it's just—I just think it's shameful, and and the process is now totally uh, a circus. And um, the only good comment about that was uh, um, the senator from South Carolina saying, "You know, circuses—I don't know—circus is supposed to be fun that you can take your children to, and this is not a circus." It's fun, or you can take your children to. But look, I mean, the the stakes are really high here. This is a, a seat that could, you know, can actually swing the balance of power in the in in the court, and that's why the Democrats are 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 throwing everything they can uh, at this process. And it does come after the Merrick Garland uh, experience, which was um, um, something that rankles a lot of Well, sure it does. I mean, uh, but I lived through that. You know, I lived through that process. I'd been hired to be a law clerk for <clears throat> the Chief Justice in 19, I guess, 68, 68 term. That's Warren Berger? No, no. No, Earl uh, Warren. Earl Warren. 
his successor was Warren Burns. So you were you were the clerk to Earl Warren. Yeah. Wow. Well, I didn't one know of that. one of four or five. Like, I mean, you know. I was you do go way back. I do go way back. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're too young to remember some of it. And uh, we, he didn't tell us that he was going to resign upon the confirmation of his successor. So when he was when he announced that, we were out of a job. And I was devastated because it's a great gig, you know, being a Supreme Court law clerk. But Fortas couldn't hack it. He was later yanked off the court entirely uh, by his colleagues. Um but he couldn't hack it. And so there he was five months later, I mean, five months to go before he's no longer president. Johnson doesn't, doesn't nominate a successor, doesn't try. Because there was an 80-year, then it was not 80 years, but there was a long tradition of no <coughs> um, confirmations in the in a presidential year. And that tradition is, is kept up. And Biden and Schumer have both said, when the shoe was on the other foot, no confirmations in a presidential year. So it was called the Biden rule. It was called point. the Biden rule. <laughs> yeah. So, come but, on. I mean, and, and the history, I won't say this is true of Kavanaugh because I don't think it would be because he's got such a track record of 12 years on the D.C. Circuit, but history is littered with disappointed presidents and their nominees. Yeah. You well, just, just look at Oliver Wendell Holmes and Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, History is littered. Do you, go just, ba- yeah. do you go that far back? I or? do, I do, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> let me, uh, Boyden, let me ask you about um, one of the exchanges on really one of the most important issues, issues that um, uh, people on both sides of the aisle uh, uh, care enormously about, which is on Roe versus Wade. And Dianne Feinstein um, was trying to uh, get him to say, get Kavanaugh to say that, A, he believed that uh, Roe versus Wade was settled law, um, and uh, that you know, he wouldn't vote to reverse it. Um, and um, I thought um, Kavanaugh's answer was interesting. He went beyond saying stare decisis, settled law, uh, you know, um, uh, you have to have respect for, for precedence. Um, and he brought up um, uh, uh, the Casey case, which reaffirmed uh, uh, Roe versus Wade in 1992, and he called it precedent on precedent. And he talked about, you know, uh, the reliance principle, and uh, seem to be trying to suggest that uh, you know Roe is different from a lot of other um, uh, Supreme Court precedents. You know where you know you might overturn those precedents. Um, what did you? What was your a? What was your take on that exchange? If you had a chance to see I didn't it, see you didn't. It. I okay, didn't see it, no. uh, but this this idea of precedent on precedent um, is is even more. Um, stronger and less likely to be overturned. Do you think that's what he was trying to suggest, or do you think? Um I don't know. I didn't see it, but there are certain cases which, I mean, Brown is one. You wouldn't. I mean, you wouldn't within the confines of even the Ginsburg rule, which is you don't answer hypotheticals, you don't uh, get into potential cases. Um, you know, there there are a handful of cases that. Fall in that category, and do you think Roe is one of those cases? I do think, you think Roe probably is one of those cases. Yeah, and, and that would you think would likely be Kavanaugh's view as well. I think so. I don't really know because I didn't see the exchange, and yeah. I never discussed this with him, so I don't know. Um, you know, I have many, many Democratic lawyer friends who think it's an absolutely uh, despicable legal document. Um, it's just wrong as a matter of law, um, but it, it's it's 
pretty much part of the landscape now. Baked into the culture. Yeah, baked into the culture. So, so how much do you think uh, a Justice Kavanaugh would swing the court to the right? You know, it's as I say, the history book is littered. Um, you know, the, the the liberals all screamed. God, there were marches and there were uh, protests when Souter was named because he was going to, you know, take away Roe v. Wade. He was going to do this, going to do that. And he didn't. He, 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 he was sort of, you could say, from a conservative's point of view, perhaps a disappointment. But perhaps he, he was a huge disappointment. Yeah. Right? As I mean, I, that was no more suitors. That was the rallying cry on the right after yes, some but, of his but decisions. I'm just saying what the left was saying uh, when he went on. I'm just saying that the, this is just, the history book is littered uh, with uh, outcomes that, that surprise. And I think... If you look at the nomination of Roberts, he's now going to be the, perhaps the swing vote. That's speculation. I don't know. You never can tell. Every new addition to the Supreme Court changes the, the dynamics in ways that no one can fully anticipate. But, but, and when he goes on the court, it'll change in ways that nobody anticipated. By the way, Boyden, am I remembering this right? I mean, you were uh, George H.W. Bush's uh, counsel when uh, Souter was nominated, but he was not your First choice, right? No. I, I, my recollection is that uh, uh, that you were you liked uh, was it Edith Jones, uh, conservative uh, from the. F- well, this is a long story, and I'm not sure this is the place to go into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't get your way. <laughs> okay, right, 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 right. Do you know Kavanaugh? I did not get. I do know him. Yes, not yeah. not extremely well, but yeah. I do know him. I mean, what's your what's your take on him? He's a terrific lawyer. He's a terrific. He's going to be a terrific justice. He was a terrific judge on the D.C. Circuit. He's incredibly hardworking, incredibly comprehensive, incredibly thoughtful. He's got it all. He's got it all. So um, I think it's going to be a good thing for the court, and I don't think that um, he's going to be a divisive force. He's, you look at the data, and he's been in the majority uh, on panels in the D.C. Circuit something like 97% of the time. I, don't I think know. someone pointed out that he voted with Merrick Garland 93% yeah, of the I mean, time. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's a team player. He call, yeah. He's a team player. He's not a divisive force. So if um, uh, some aspect of the Mueller inquiry ends up before the Supreme Court, whether because Mueller subpoenas the president or um, takes some, you know, or indicts the president, uh, or if there's some constitutional wrangle, over the um, uh, the Mueller investigation, um, where do you think Kavanaugh comes out? It's hard to prejudge that. You can't prejudge it. It all depends on the facts and circumstances at the time, and you can never you can never predict the the, the circumstances in, in in which something like this could arise. You just can't predict it. Do so, you be, do you believe a president can be subpoenaed? My own personal view is. Um, Yes, but there's a very high bar. You have to show there's no other way to get the information. You have to show a bunch of things that I think have, um, would, would preclude his winning in court because he's had an open book on the Supreme Court, I mean on the White House, that his Mueller has, and he's had 30 hours with, with uh, McCann, the White House counsel, my successor, um, What'd you make of that, by the way, Don McGahn? You had that same job that Don McGahn has, and the idea that the White House counsel spent thirty hours being uh, grilled by surpri- a special I was, counsel. I was surprised, but 
um, it may have been a very good move. Uh, but, the, but the point is, is that at this stage, I don't know how Mueller justifies a subpoena. By the way, in that, in that con- there's no attorney-client privilege in that. I mean, there are other there, privileges. There no, there's no attorney-client privilege in yeah, the government. In that context, no. yeah. Well, you actually did. I mean, you were there during the whole Walsh-Iran-Contra investigation. Um, were you um, questioned by Walsh? Yes, I think I was informally by his staff, not by him. Uh, I don't remember the exact right. uh, details. But right, but so you did not, there was no invocation of executive or attorney-client No, I think, I think the president had waived it, and, I mean, Reagan had waived executive privilege, and so did, so did Bush. Um, how do you think the Mueller thing is going to play out at this point? I just don't know. I mean, I just don't know. That, you know, this town being as leaky as it is, if they had anything that, that linked Trump uh, to any kind of collusion, I think they would have it would have leaked. And this has been going on not just since Mueller was there. They, he came in and was and was taking over the counterintelligence uh, investigation. Been going on for a year before he got there. And there's no there's no there that appears to be no there there. Well, of course, there's also the other investigation that's putting pressure on Trump, which is uh, his own lawyer, personal lawyer, um, Michael Cohen. In his uh, plea, uh, fingering uh, the president as uh, directing Cohen to pay hush money uh, to women that the president allegedly had affairs with uh, right before the election. Is that how troubling is that? Well, it's no more troubling than if he had directed Cohen to pay for a new wig or set of false teeth so he'd look better in the debates. I mean, everything a president does or a candidate does is designed to influence the outcome of the election. That's what he's in there for. And yeah, but this was this was the Southern District prosecutors concluded a violation of election law. No, 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 no. Putting on a new wig. No, or no, no, no. They didn't. Teeth is not a violation of election law. Well, that's what you think. Why is that any different than than paying hush money, Michael? Well, well, no, no. It was a expenditure for the purpose of influencing an election. You don't think buying a new wig couldn't have been Wait, an expenditure it, for the purpose? Oh, oh, no, of course not. Oh, you're dismissing it. I mean, by I'm the way, saying, are you saying that Donald Trump wears a wig? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> Uh, nor am I suggesting that maybe he should wear it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, final question. Uh, you, re- you no doubt read the uh, op-ed in the New York Times by this anonymous senior official. You say it may have been a committee, uh, but let's take the Times and the uh, official at its word. Um, what if, uh, if, if that official, whoever he or she may be, called you up uh, this afternoon and asked you for uh, advice, what would you tell them? It's probably an old-fashioned view, but I think the person ought to own up to, as to who he or she is and, um, and, and, and defend him or herself in the debate, you know, the, the public debate. I mean, answer questions you raise, ask, ask, answer questions that Congress raises. I mean, but, you know, when, when, when it's anonymous, where do you go? And yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't. I question the Times' judgment in publishing something that can't be, that can't be part of the well, should, public should, debate. Should should this person continue to serve? In well, we the don't government? know who it is. We don't know who it is, and the answer is probably no. But you know, senior official in the White House is very elastic. Yeah, it's a very it, elastic actually, term. It's, it's senior official in the administration. In the administration. We don't. We don't even know it's even in the White more. House. It couldn't elastic. even be in. It couldn't even be. It might not even be in the White House. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, um, you're not in the administration, so we know it's not you. It is not I. Which is one reason why you're here, uh, <laughs> aside from your wisdom on so many other things, going back to Oliver Wendell Holmes <laughs> and Teddy Roosevelt. So thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks, Boyden. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. And now for a somewhat different perspective on the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, we are joined by Ron Klain, former chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, who helped p- pick judges for the uh, Clinton White House. Um, Ron, welcome back to Skullduggery. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be back. Um, so um, what's your take on how the Kavanaugh hearings have been going so far? Well, you know, uh, if it wasn't rigged, I'd say he was in trouble. So, <laughs> look, I mean, in the end, the hearings are about the votes. And you'd have to assume that uh, Judge Kavanaugh uh, in a Senate with 52 Republicans uh, has the votes. And um, and overcoming that's going to be very, very hard. But I would say he's done very little to help himself in that regard in the hearings and a lot to hurt himself. I think the questions about his credibility in response to the question Senator Leahy's put about the whole Manny Miranda document mess uh, a pretty obscure issue for most people, don't you think? I uh, mean, who uh, remembers, uh, other than you yeah, and yeah. a few of your friends, yeah. uh, the Manny Miranda leaks uh, right. from 20 years ago? Or? The, the, the issue is obscure, but credibility is never obscure when it comes to a Supreme Court nomination. And I think you add to it uh, some of these uh, issues that have come up now around things he said and then the documents coming out later to call those things into question, as well as, of course, the headline issues in the hearings, his position on uh, Roe v. Wade and women's right to choose, his position on issues of race and affirmative action, his positions on executive power and whether or not the president can be subject to the rule of law. I think you put all that together, and I think the Democrats have done a very good job of building a case against Judge Kavanaugh. And I don't think he's done a particularly good job of uh, dealing with some of these issues. Um, and look, and I think overall, you know, the, the Republicans have two fundamental arguments about why he should be confirmed. One is this kind of democratic theory argument that Trump put out a list in 2016. He won. And so he's entitled to his nominee. And the second is that Kavanaugh's got very good credentials. So look, he does have very good credentials in terms of traditional legal credentials. I've, I've said that before. I said it when he was nominated for the D.C. Circuit. I said that to his background checkers then. But I think that argument's kind of fallen apart in light of the facts. Trump did put out a list of candidates he would put on the Supreme Court if he won the election. Brett Kavanaugh wasn't on it. He put out a second list. Brett Kavanaugh wasn't on it. If you want to go with Democratic theory, there were 21 people on Trump's list on Election Day 2016. Brett Kavanaugh wasn't one of them when the voters uh, picked uh, Donald Trump. He got on that list in November of 2017. And so what happened between him not being in the top 20 in 2016 to being on the list in 2017? Two things. One, he wrote a very profoundly anti-abortion decision in the Garza case. He said, not only said a minor wasn't entitled to be released from custody to get an abortion, but used phrases like abortion on demand and called wrote an existing Supreme Court precedent. And that put him to the top of the list of the anti-choice movement. And some, something else big happened between the list in 2016 and the list in 2017. That's the Mueller investigation. President Trump, I'm sure, wanted a judge who might rule for him on questions of whether or not he could be subpoenaed, who might rule for him on questions of whether or not he could be held accountable in the legal system. It's very hard to find someone with those views, but Brett Kavanaugh is someone with those views. Well, let me, let me posit another theory about why he wasn't on the first lists and, and, and then he was nominated. The first lists were about, uh, you know, exciting 
the conservative base. It was tactically and politically very smart of the Trump campaign to put those lists out. And ultimately, he's nominated because he was confirmable. And and it looks like he's going to be confirmed. And let me, when we had you on a few weeks ago after the nomination, what I recall you saying was at the end of the day, the Democrats weren't going to be able to shut down the hearing. It wasn't going to be about parliamentary tactics. It was going to be about persuasion. Um, and uh, and that was going to, and not just the force of arguments of members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, but it was going to have to be a grassroots campaign. Yeah. And that just didn't seem to materialize. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to this uh, confirmation hearing. Well, look, obviously, there's a lot of things competing for people's attentions. I don't mean to minimize <laughs> That's that. That's true. Uh, there's no question <laughs> about that. But I do think, actually, you know, uh, he has been the subject of the uh, largest protest of any Supreme Court nomination in history in late August. And I do think you see opposition building. What's really interesting about this, Dan, is that historically, nominees uh, get more popular during the process. The public sees them more. Their popularity goes up in polls. Virtually every poll taken on the Kavanaugh nomination, his popularity is going down. And I, as I said before, I don't think he's helping himself in these hearings. Um, and so I think we're going to see where his popularity stands next week or the week after when the Judiciary Committee finally votes on this uh, and as it moves to the Senate floor. But, I, but I, I think that the grassroots battle is not over. I think the hearings are really the first time when people, a lot of people pay attention. And so now we're going to see what happens as this process unfolds. Do you think these protests at the hearings, people getting up shouting and then having to be hauled out, do you think that helps your case? Look, I don't think it helps or hurts very much. I think, though, the protests that have gone on in the month of, of August, organized by uh, Rise Up for Row, organized by a coalition but of th- progressive groups. But this is the moment that people are watching and they're seeing every few minutes somebody gets up, shouts something, and has to get hauled out. They're clearly disrupting the, the, the hearings. Um, I just wonder whether that uh, is going to cut uh, against the Democrats on this. Uh, look, I don't think people... Uh, I don't think it's. I don't think it really helps that much. I don't think it really hurts that much. I think what people are mostly seeing are the clips of, of Judge Kavanaugh um, answering or not answering more often the questions that I think strike them as pretty reasonable. What would he do about a woman's right to choose? What would he do about um, uh, pre-existing conditions in the health care law? What would he do about executive power and holding President Trump accountable? And particularly those questions juxtaposed against some of the documents that have started to come out from his time in the Bush White House that began to come out from the committee today, I think raise raise those questions. I think are going to raise doubts. Now, look, I absolutely agree. There's a lot else going on in the country. We got anonymous op-eds in the New York Times. We got Bob Woodward's book, so on and so forth, it's competing for attention. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think the public's dialing in, and I do think Democrats are making a, a strong case in these hearings as to why Judge Kavanaugh should not be confirmed. But, and I want to get into those uh, constitutional issues in a second. But bottom line, at this point, two and a half days into the hearing, are you seeing ed- any evidence of anybody uh, – ch- these hearings changing anyone's vote? So, I mean, obviously too soon to say, and I think the key votes will play it very close to the vest till the very, very last minute. Um, so I, obviously no one who uh, was on the fence have come out against him. No one who was on the fence has come out for him either. And um, and so, you know, we're going to have to see. I think that, uh, as I said, better to be a Republican than a Democrat with this lineup of votes. Better to have 52 than to have 48. But, um, but you know, it's, it's interesting. In the entire history of our country, we've had nominees get confirmed. We've had a lot of them lose. We've never, ever, ever had a nominee get voted onto the Supreme Court by a straight party line vote. It's never happened before. This could be the first. 
Um, I one really striking moment was uh, Kamala Harris when she was uh, grilling uh, uh, Kavanaugh about whether she ha- he had talked about the Mueller investigation with uh, somebody who was a member of the law firm of Mark Kasowitz, who of course had represented President Trump. And uh, uh, Kavanaugh seemed flummoxed yeah. when he got that question. Kept asking who are you referring to, who at the law firm she was grilling. You know, it's a yes or no question. Did you ever have this conversation? Uh, does she have anything? I don't know. She says she does. We'll, we'll have to see what she has. I presume. So, look, Senator Harris was uh, attorney general. Uh, I don't think she would ask this question unless she had some basis for asking I mean, it, it seems to me that... Um, What's uh, the old line? You don't ask the question yeah, yeah, that you don't know the answer you know the to. Answer. Yeah. Now, now, I mean... If if she's got somebody and we're going to get a surprise witness, uh, you know, later in the process uh, who comes forward and says, I talked to Brett Kavanaugh about this. I think that would be quite damaging. Well, okay, possibly, but let me depending just, on the conversation. I mean, right. I but mean, if she doesn't, if she doesn't, everyone's talked about the Mueller investigation. Right, I mean, right. the question is, what do they talk about? Right, exactly. Well, exactly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But, stop, but stop, if stop. she doesn't, <laughs> I think that's the, you know she's going to take a lot of flack for um, you know for raising this uh, when when she had an empty hand. Well, I, I agree with the second. If she has if she has nothing, I don't think she would have raised it. So let's put that aside for a second. Everyone. I mean, I've talked about the Mueller investigation. We've talked about we've talked about it on this podcast before. Yeah. But but I think uh, here's what's a little different in this case, right? Judge Kavanaugh has taken the position. Uh, one asked about could a president pardon himself. One asked about whether or not a president can be subpoenaed. One asked about a lot of questions. Look, I, I can't talk about that because I'm a sitting judge, and this could come before me either in my current position or on the Supreme Court, which now, is true. Which is a true statement, but. If he can't talk about it in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, what was he doing talking about it with the president's law firm? Okay, if that's what's that's a fair happened, point. if that's what's happened, right? So, 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 look. I mean, I, I think, you know, he said he said, look, I did discuss it with my fellow judges because, after all, like everyone's talking about it, you know, like coffee shop talk or coffee, uh, you know, coffee pot talk or whatever. But that's very different than talking about it. If you're willing to go talk about it with outside people, if you're willing to go talk about it with certainly lawyers who represent the president, then it's very hard to explain why you can't answer these questions to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, uh, I should also point out that, look, on the question of executive power, um, certainly he wrote those law review articles which suggest that Congress should pass a law that would uh, restrict uh, a a criminal proceeding against the president while he's in office. Uh, He didn't opine on whether the Constitution permits that in and of itself. He also said, and I thought this was quite striking, that he viewed uh, U.S. versus Nixon as one of the great moments in Supreme Court history, which was a, an judicial, affirmation judicial of, independence. Of, of, well, of, you know, a, well, a judicial uh, supremacy over a president under investigation, well, let's, right? Let's, well, yes and so, no, right? So let's be clear about that. He also, he earlier had cited U.S. v. Nixon as possibly a wrongly decided case. And then in 2016, 2016, perhaps as he's thinking about his future and a Supreme Court nomination, he all of a sudden has it on a list of four great cases for the Supreme Court. So, I mean, who are you going to believe? Look, I mean, it, and it's not just these well, random— Well, I mean, sworn just testimony these... before the Judiciary Committee well, does get some te- weight some... over a uh, offhand comment many years ago but at it's a not, judicial— that's the point I want to make, legal though, Wait, That's the point I want to make. It's not an offhand comment. There is a body of scholarship here, including his opinions as a judge in, for example, in dissent 
in the case upholding the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, of a very, very extreme view of executive power. Uh, that dissent, for example, where he upheld, the, where the court upheld the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he begins by citing as the central authority for his dissent Justice Scalia's dissent in Morrison v. Olson. Not Supreme Court law, but actually a piece of law rejected eight to one by the Supreme Court. His views on, exec- on, the, on the expanse and the reach and the breadth of executive power are consistent. These aren't just a few offhand comments. These aren't just a, a stray thing at a conference here or a few lines in a law review article here. This is the body of his work as a as a commentator, constitutional commentator, and as a, and as a judge on the nation's second highest court. And so, I don't think it's unfair to press these questions. I don't think it's unfair to have these doubts. That's the direction his record points in. And as I say, I have very little doubt that's one of the main reasons why Donald Trump picked him for the Supreme Court. Uh, other than um, executive power, the other one of the other really big legal constitutional issues uh, that have dominated these hearings is. Uh, Woman's right to choose Roe versus Wade. I'm curious um, w- how you think he did answering uh, those questions, and then we can talk about some of the emails that um, right. have been exposed. So the the first thing I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, he obviously talked about it being settled law and stare decisis and precedent and reliance interests and all of those kind of legal buzzwords that you hear in these hearings. Um, but he also talked about um, uh, uh, precedent on precedent, and he cited. Um, the Casey case, reaffirming Roe in uh, 1992, and seemed to be suggesting, gesturing toward, well, that's that makes Roe different from a lot of other precedents that might be overturned. Uh, that seemed shrewd to me. It seemed like he was being a good political operative there. What was your take on that exchange with uh, Senator Feinstein? Well, look, I think um, he, he's, he's trying to wink and nod as much as he can, but, but he's got a record here that you can't run away from. And uh, and and uh, again, and I think uh, almost a, a campaign effort to get on the Supreme Court by showing himself to be against Roe versus Wade. And specifically, as I mentioned before, uh, just uh, last year in this uh, decision involving a— In the Garza in case. In the Garza case, a decision involving a minor who had been detained because she was an immigrant and wanted uh, to get an abortion. Uh, and he, uh, he wrote an opinion saying she should not be able to get it. He um, referred to her uh, petition as a request for abortion on demand. That's not a legal phrase. It's not a phrase lawyers use. not a phrase judges use. That's a political phrase and obviously in some ways an offensive phrase about a, a young woman who's seeking to exercise her constitutional rights. And then he went through the law. He referred to Roe and its progeny as existing Supreme Court precedents. Well, you know, if if my wife introduced me to people as her existing husband, <laughs> I would I would check the state of our life insurance policies. And you wouldn't refer to Brown versus education as existing right. president. And, and in fact, nor has he. Right. He he, he uh, uh, said before the committee that you know Brown is not going to come before him. He can say it was rightly decided, so on and so forth. He hasn't said the same thing about Roe. So I have very little doubt that Brett Kavanaugh is a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think he signaled over, wholesale, not not chip away, not incremental, wholesale overturn. Wholesale overturn Roe versus Wade, and in fact, one of the emails that came out today is an email where he, uh, as a as a lawyer in the White House, pushed back against the description of Roe versus Wade as settled law. No, he said he said not all legal scholars would agree that yeah, it is yeah. settled law. Okay, he wasn't uh, opining on yeah. his own personal uh, view. Yes, of course, and then right. uh, and noted that and said uh, so in that. Uh, and, and so, so look, I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of evidence that's where he points. I think it's a lot of evidence where he that's where he lands, and we saw. Um, and the last thing I'd say is, 
Um, you know, fool me once, you know, sh- shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The Senate Judiciary Committee listened to Judge Gorsuch sit there and talk, wax on eloquently about precedent and stare decisis. And he'd been on the court one year before he voted with a majority to overturn uh, a 40-year-old precedent in Abood and to rule against public uh, sector unions. And by the way, a decision, the Abood decision had been decided about the same time as Roe. It was a 9-0 decision in the Supreme Court. Five justice majority last term overturned it in the Janus decision. So uh, I, I think we know what the agenda is here. I think we know why he's being put up for the Supreme Court. And I think, um, uh, you know, I think that's uh, that's what the senator should vote on. Um, I you want to move on to yes. Uh, I want to. Let me let me just ask. I just okay. want to ask one one last question on on this, which is, I thought one of the more striking moments was actually one of the introductions. Um, uh, this woman, uh, Lisa Blatt, who you probably know, yeah. very uh, experienced appellate lawyer, argued dozens of cases before the Supreme Court. A liberal Democrat, a staunch supporter of a uh, of a woman's right to choose. Huge fan of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think she said she would, you know, give all nine votes to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and yet she was up there advocating on behalf of of uh, 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 Brett Kavanaugh. And her argument was, "Look, my fellow liberal Democrats, you're not going to do better than than Brett Kavanaugh." And doesn't she have a point that if uh, the Democrats were to prevail here, which is likely not going to happen. But if they did, uh, are they going to get uh, someone better than um, than Brett Kavanaugh? So I think that's the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. And and just to be honest, <laughs> wait, what do you really the, think? The, and just to be honest, the most ridiculous <laughs> uh, with with with, uh, with no due respect to Lisa Blatt, the stupidest argument I've ever heard. So you know, the last <laughs> time we went through this, something like this was in 1987 when President Ronald Reagan, one of the most conservative presidents in American history, nominated Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. And uh, the Democrats and Republicans banded together, voted down Judge Bork, and his replacement was Justice Anthony Kennedy. So the idea that there is no one better than Brett Kavanaugh, the idea that there's no point in defeating Brett Kavanaugh, because what will Trump do next, is belied by the example of the person who got on the Supreme Court who's leaving now to be replaced by Brett Kavanaugh. So I think if you can't look back to the Bork nomination and draw a lesson from that, that I, I don't even understand that. Second thing I'd say is I don't. I, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Senate has to like grade on a curve, that it has to adjust its views on advice and consent because Donald Trump is president. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is our president, no question about that. But every member of the Senate was also elected, and their role in this process is also constitutional. And they have just as much a right to exercise their power to withhold their consent as President Trump had to nominate. And, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, I don't I don't think uh, they have to, like, say, well, I'm going to grade this one on a curve. And uh, and if, if their view is that Judge Kavanaugh does not belong on the Supreme Court, they should vote against Judge Kavanaugh. And then it's up to President Trump to see what happens next. All right. You mentioned that there's a lot else going on this week. And, of course, uh, one of those big uh, developments is this extraordinary New York Times op-ed piece by some anonymous person described as a senior official in the Trump administration uh, saying that uh, he or she is doing everything uh, they he or she can to thwart the president uh, because of his uh, repetitive rants, his impulsiveness, uh, half-baked and uh, reckless decisions. You've got a theory about who this is, um, so why don't you share it? I do have a theory, and I'll start with the acknowledgement that the person who I think it is has put out a denial saying it's not him. (laughs) So, you know, you can take that for what it's worth. But look, my I, I said last night, my suspicion was that it was 
uh, Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence. And here's why I think that. First, there's no love loss between President Trump and uh, Director Coats. Uh, Coates has been openly critical of the president, and the president's been openly critical of him. So that's one point. Secondly, I'm pretty sure the person who wrote that is from the national security side of the administration, because there's a whole paragraph on how successful the administration is in dealing with Russia. I really don't know anyone who believes that, other than someone who's working on this problem right now on behalf of the Trump administration. So if you think about that side of the House, who would it be? Well, the other thing that's really a tell in there is there's a discussion of historic tax cuts and effective deregulation. That's not a general. I've never heard a general talk about historic tax cuts or, or an ambassador or someone like that, you know, someone from a national security professional. That's a Republican political operative who basically has a lot of uh, kind of standard Republican rhetoric in the piece. So you're looking for someone who's like a Republican uh, elected official, Republican campaigner, and someone on the national security side of the House. That's a pretty small overlap. There are other people besides Dan Coats. I think Coates fits that. The last thing I'd add is the piece ends with a real tribute to John McCain. And again, not to John McCain's military service, not to John McCain's personal heroism, but to John McCain as someone who tried to work on a bipartisan basis as an elected official. That sounds a lot like a senator to me. It sounds like a lot like one of Senator McCain's former colleagues. You put all that together. I do think that it, that points to Dan Coates. I'd add, Plus, he's from your home state. Of he is from my Indiana, home state. He has so a special insight into his, his character. Insight. I'd also say that you'd have to be someone who believed that they had the trade craft to get this piece written and placed in the New York Times without, <laughs> without getting caught, without their computer being searched, so on and so forth. You know, look, that, that sounds that sounds like something you could have pulled off, actually. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Did you have a role in this? Yeah, I don't know. So, so look, I mean, you know, as Hoosier said, to Hoosier. Director Coates has said it's not him. I, yeah. I, he's an honest man. I do respect him on that, but uh, but you wouldn't be much of a spy if you did that and then you admitted to it, so uh, so we'll have to see. Right. I, I think uh, Dan and I both remember the last time there was a search for who Anonymous is. That was, of course, the author of Primary Colors, yeah. uh, which, uh, which turned out to be one of our colleagues at yeah. Newsweek, Joe yeah. Klein. Yeah. So um, you never know. Uh, anyway, uh, Ron, thanks for coming back and joining us again on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks to Congressman Jamie Raskin, Boyden Gray, and Ron Klain for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturday and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. 